her sentences are like that line of gold. They run through the thing, and they are um, a, a kind of living wire of thought that you can follow when you read it. And that, I think, is really part of her uh, talent as a writer. The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. We're so happy to have you here tonight. This is the the last talk at the interval uh, for 2018. Um, And it's a really special one. we are so happy to welcome Kim Stanley Robinson back for his third talk uh, here. Um, and when when he gave his first talk two years ago, um, and Stuart Brand, uh, our uh, co-founder and president, was uh, interviewing him, um, and, and, and this is a video you can go back and watch. Uh, he's talking about uh, the political ideas in his novel, New York 2140. Um, he, he talks a bit about his uh, literary DNA and his intellectual DNA. And he, he talks about the teachers he had. Uh, and that was the first time that I had heard, and I think a lot of us knew, that uh, Ursula K. Le Guin was one of his teachers, along with Frederick Jameson, Gary Snyder, uh, and a number of other uh, amazing folks. Um, so, uh, as uh, Ursula Le Guin, one of our great writers, passed away uh, at the beginning of this year, as we reached the end of this year, and, we were t- and Stan and I were talking about what he might want to talk about this time, despite the fact he has a, a new novel, a, a wonderful new novel out himself, um, he got really excited when we talked about the idea of... Uh, of looking uh, to talk about his relationship with Ursula, her importance to um, society and to literature, and um, well, everything he's going to tell you about here in a second. So, um, I, I just just it's going to be a wonderful night, and this is the um, you know this is the debut. Uh, Stan put this together just for tonight, and. Uh, Please reflect on that as you give him a big round of applause. Uh, we're so happy to have Kim Stanley Robinson back. Stan. Oh, my. Oh, my. Thank you, Michael. Well, first I want to thank Michael so much for bringing up the idea of getting to talk about Ursula Le Guin. It's a huge pleasure for me. So it's good to see everybody, and it is lovely to be able to give this particular talk. Um, because I, it's I've never done it before, and it's a, it's a, it means a lot to me. So thank you, and thank you, Stuart and Cameron and everybody else. Um, so I'm going to talk for 45 minutes, uh, and I'm going to split it into chapters here. Uh, I'm going to talk about the the Le Guin as a a, um, a figure in American literature. And I'm going to talk about my first encounter with Le Guin. And then about her as a writer, um, and then my last encounter with Le Guin, and then a, a kind of a wrap-up. So um, to start with, you've got to go back to the 1950s. 
And so she was born in 27, I think it was, or 29. She was born in 29, and in the 50s, she was a young married woman, and she was beginning to have children, and she was, uh, came from a family, academic family of anthropologists, the famous Krober, um, Alfred and Theodore, but a Berkeley girl, but married a, a guy, Le Guin, from Portland, and is up in Portland, Oregon, and she was writing. She was writing fiction. And for 10 years, it didn't sell. But what you have to understand is that the 1950s for science fiction was a period of being part of the modernist split between high art, the good stuff, and uh, popular art, the bad stuff. It was a severe split. You either did one or the other. And science fiction coming out of the pulps was the other. It was like comic books or any uh, pornography, any other trashy thing that, that people who weren't educated did, but educated people didn't read it. But the people writing it were engineers, and by the 50s, they were really accomplished writers. They were smart. They were mostly men, but not all men. Maybe 80% of them were men, and they were writing really some of the smartest stuff done in the 1950s to no public acclaim whatsoever not from the literary culture, and no money whatsoever, being paid sometimes less than a penny a word. So I call this the broken generation. Um, people like Alfred Bester or Budras or Damon Knight or Frederick Pohl, um, Edgar Pangborn, Walter Miller, you look at their life, their careers as artists, and they're broken. There's years where they were dysfunctional or not writing, or they couldn't write, or they couldn't sell. They did other things, they took other jobs, they, they became alcoholics. The, the, the generation is littered with broken careers. It was hard. And sensitive people, some of them were tough, and they said it's just the way it is. I happen to be interested in a strange art form. Sensitive souls like Philip K. Dick were permanently psychologically damaged by being looked down on like this, and talked about the years when he had to eat dog food, and so on and so forth. So um, Le Guin wrote for 10 years, uh, short stories and novels, and couldn't publish a thing. Um, people would write back rejection letters, and I, you know it marks someone when their website still includes facts, uh, uh, reproductions of rejection letters from the 1950s. Uh, you write well, but this is so obscure, this is so weird, this is so distant, we don't get it. And uh, she's much like Jean Wolfe in this case, and the two of them are a match in many ways, including their greatness. And both of them were writing through the 1950s with no sales at all. And one time, John Clute and I had Gene Wolfe on stage and we were interviewing him like a nutcracker with a Brazil nut. You know, he was not going to crack, but we were pressing him really hard. And I said to him, Gene, 10 years of writing stories, sending them out, getting rejected every time, what'd that do to you? He said, it made me mean. <laughs> I, he said, and then I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I'm like a dog on a, on a chain. You, if you're outside the length of the chain, you're okay. You get inside the link that chain, you're going to get bit. Well, this was Gene Wolfe, but the thing is, Ursula and Gene had a lot um, of common, and I think that those 10 years of rejection marked her. Uh, and it, why wouldn't it? 10 years is a long time. And they weren't her 20s, they were her 30s. Maybe they're her 20s. They were a little of both. It took a long time. And finally, she began to sell, and it was to uh, Celie Goldsmith, editor of Fanta Fantastic Magazine. And she sold Semley's Necklace, a short little fantasy short story. And she'd been writing these kind of stories all, all along, but somehow Ursula hadn't got it, that there was a world there waiting for her, an audience there. So she began to publish 
in the science fiction magazines, and she began to publish at Ace Books, these little novels, the first Hainish novels. And Terry Carr, uh, he told me once that he, when he got these Hainish novels, he was published under Ace, he got the Ace specials, and she sent in a new manuscript, and it was The Left Hand of Darkness, and he said, I, I finished that book, and I walked down Manhattan Street, and I was walking three feet off the ground. So um, she had found a place. And in those first books, she resembled a, a crowd of people, Jack Vance, Edgar Pangborn, the planetary romance, and everybody understood her to, that she fit right in, and she had a community at that point of fellow writers and of readers. And then she began to stick out because Left Hand of Darkness, Lathe of Heaven, Wizard of Earthsea, and The Dispossessed all came in about a five-year period. And at that point, and Nine Lies, this short story that is one of the best short stories ever. Well, at that point, everybody realized in the community, she doesn't just fit in, she's a star. She's one of the leaders of the new wave. It wasn't just her. There was Delaney, Zelazny, Tom Dish. They were translating Lem and the Strugatsky brothers. The new wave was hot, but she was as, as hot as any of them. She was a, one of the pr most prominent of the new wave in that period of time. And then it, uh, the Kroeber connection helped. If she wasn't a good writer, it wouldn't have mattered a damn. But since she was a good writer, people could also say, well, she comes from this incredible American tradition of, of wonderful um, anthropologists. She's a, an American intellectual uh, aristocracy, you might say. That helped. The name Le Guin, exotic and French, that helped. Um, it was all, be, and academia was getting interested in science fiction too. And that helped because they said, well, who should we read? And quickly, because academics want to only write about writers that everybody else has already read so that they can get their articles published. So the process of canonization is incredibly rapid. So who did you write about? You wrote about Le Guin or Philip K. Dick. 50%, maybe 80% of the first academic articles about science fiction are about Ursula and about Philip K. Dick. Because that, they knew that they could write articles and other people would at least have known who they were talking about. So she began to bust out a little bit. The academic attention, the big, um, the great books, the sense that she was an aristocrat and she was a kind of a spokesperson and she was feisty and sharp, funny and uh, charismatic. Um, and began to get published in The New Yorker, began to be treated as if she was a real writer. And at that point also, modernism itself was falling apart. Postmodernism is different than modernism. In postmodernism, you can be the great comic book artist, um, Art Spiegel. You know, and, and postmodernism is a different culture than the old high-low split. Right now, no matter what you do, graphic novel or painting with uh, poster paint on that wall over there, or Abramovich doing the incredible things that she does with her body on stage, you can do anything and it could be great art. There is no a value system of a good art versus a bad art. And Ursula was riding that wave and also making that happen. So, um, and she became kind of what you would say the entry drug to science fiction. Say you had a friend, oh, I'm interested in science fiction. You know, you're a geek, you're a science fiction writer. What should I read? <laughs> read The Left Hand of Darkness. If you don't get that, you won't get, you know, you're not, you're not suited for this genre. <laughs> and, and so um, that, that was true for so many people that Ursula was the one that you could understand. She was accessible, she was clear. 
She was in the New Yorker. She was the point man. There were still condescending people. The more postmodernism means that all art forms are equal, the more the people who are committed to high modernism, to the idea that they are um, in the, a priest, perhaps, of a, of a religion, where there's really good art, there's literary fiction, and then there's popular fiction, the more you hold to that, you're on an island, the tide is rising, the island's getting smaller, you get more vehement. You don't say, I'm gonna swim off with the rest of these people in the swamp, you get more vehement. She took a lot of that and she gave it right back. And well, if that's what you're gonna say, then you're wrong and this is why. And she was tough and convincing and again, very charismatic. So right about in the middle of that uh, was when I first met her. I, um, this is 1977. I had gone to UCSD, I had gone off to Boston to go to graduate school. And truthfully, I wimped out in Boston because it was so cold. It was the first winter of my life. I was a kid from Southern California, and Boston, dirty snow in the streets, cold, my feet right on the um, radiator, steam radiator. People are indoors all the time. I mean, how can you abide that? <laughs> so I bailed. My first winter, I went back to UCSD. And um, when I got back to UCSD, I thought, oh, Stan, that was stupid. Um, you know, UCSD wasn't the same. I wasn't the same. You can't go home again. It's all true. And I was in San Diego thinking I had ruined my life. And, you know, I was in my 20s. I actually thought I had ruined my whole life. Uh, and I, I, I was in graduate school. I told everybody there, call me Kim. I was Kim Robinson. Kim Robinson, you know, who are you? I'm Kim. It was like part of my depression, it was part of my uh, schizophrenia about being in graduate school compared to being a real writer, because I still, at that point, being trained as a modernist, thought that there were pale faces and red Indians in American literature. Didn't realize that was totally a construct and nonsense to begin with, but I was a red Indian. So what was I doing in graduate school? Well, uh, Kim was in graduate school. So um, then suddenly there's a notice in my mailbox at UCSD. Um, we're gonna, Ursula Le Guin's gonna come teach for a month, spring quarter. This was 1977, I had read The Dispossessed, I was completely blown away by these books. She's coming to UCST, I thought, maybe I haven't ruined my life after all. <laughs> so she came for a month, she taught two classes. In fact, when she arrived, she, she only came for a month because she didn't want to be away from her husband uh, 10 weeks. So they made a special arrangement for her, and my friend Lowry Pay taught for the first six weeks, and then she came and taught for the last four, and he just shifted over to like a teaching assistant. Wonderful guy, Lowry. And he, she, I, she said, oh, who are you? I said, I'm Stan Robinson. Pay looks at me and goes, well, I thought you were Kim Robinson. And so I said, well, I'm, I'm Kim in graduate school. I'm, you know, I'm Stan when I'm down at the beach. And she, he's looking at me and he's like, whoa. And she, he looked at Ursula. Ursula looks at him and he's going, schizophrenic. I mean, I have no idea. And she said, you know, actually, in the science fiction community, Larry, this guy counts as really normal. So she was already hip to science fiction strangeness. And so in that month, she taught two classes, and she had office hours, three, three hours a week. And I want to read you the book list, because I think this itself is interesting. One class was in science fiction, one was a writing workshop, and I took both. Why wouldn't you? So she assigned these novels, Hard to Be a God by the Strugatsky Brothers, Martian Time Slip by Philip K. Dick, 
Camp Concentration by Thomas Dish, The Invincible by Stanislaw Lem, The Fifth Head of Cerberus by Gene Wolfe, The Dream Master by Roger Zelazny, The Exile Waiting by Vaughn de McIntyre, and, and Strange at Ekbatan the Trees by Michael Bishop. And the, the McIntyre and Bishop are two Le Guin pastiches of the late 70s. So they're kind of like works that were in the mode of Le Guin, and I'm not even sure she recognized that, but I did. And she also had just discovered Italo Calvino. So Baron in the Trees and The Non-Existent Night and The Cloven Viscount, which are published together, she wanted to talk about those. Those were new discoveries for her. So these were, um, this is literary science fiction. She's not just saying in these books, first of all, it's not her, um, comp colleagues, competitors slash in the new wave. Um, it's sort of, some of them are, like Zelazny, but a lot of them are, she's saying, science fiction is so big that people like Calvino, like the Stugatskis, like the Lamb, it's not just that it's as good as the ordinary literary fiction of the late 70s, it's better. 1977, if you could collect a collection of books like that out of the literature, out of what we call mainstream literature of the previous 10 years, you could not do it, I swear. It's a, an amazing list, and she was happy to discuss it. And then she also had her, um, the writing workshop. Um, and she also had her office hours. So I would walk by, I'd kind of look over in her office. It's on the, um, the Muir campus, I think, at uh, UC San Diego, and she'd just been assigned one of the offices along the rest. I'd walk along, Ursula Gwen's holding office hours, there's nobody there. This is like a crime against nature. This is like some cosmic waste of time. So I would drop in. And so she knew what she had. She had an ambitious young science fiction writer who has just barely begun and didn't, hadn't written anything much worth of anything. I had been to Clarion, and I knew science fiction backward and forward. But she read everything that I'd written. That was only a half dozen stories. And she read this big, long novella of mine that later became the third part of Icehenge. But at that point, it was just a mess. It was actually three, all three parts of Icehenge squooshed together and not unpacked yet by Damon Knight, as, which he did later. So she reads it all. This office hours. We talked. We chatted. We became um, friendly. And she was, I said, what do you think of this novella, Ursula? And she goes, well, I really like this typo that you make, where every time you type the word laugh, being left-handed and typing fast, I always type the A before the L. And this is before computers, of course, it's on a typewriter. Always a luff. She says, I love this word a luff. Don't you love this word a luff? And I'm looking at her going, lady, this is my magnum opus. And you're, <laughs> so really what she was saying was, you know, keep writing. She would always say that, keep writing. And so um, there was a group of students there that she called the Barstow Five. And the Barstow Five were, um, it's about as working, they were out of the desert, okay? And they were um, what we would now call food insecure. They were uh, spending more money than they had to go to college. And their writing was great. And she stayed in contact with them for a long time. And I said to her, this, these stories are so good. Um, why are we doing science fiction when these realist stories about hard scrabble desert life are so good already? She says, well, Stan, you need, to, you need to work on that, maybe figure that out. Um, and so I wrote Ridge Running, a story about backpacking and about a, a young man brain damaged in the High Sierra. You know, it was a science fiction story because they'd fixed his brain by chemical means, by a zap. But it was also, obviously, a, a realist story about a young person who had discovered the Sierras. She goes, ah, oh, yes. Now that's a pretty damn good story. 
Um, that's what you should do more of, she told me. And that really was an, probably the most important lesson that I got from her out of my science fiction classes with her. And then it was in uh, 77. We went down as a class to see this new movie, Star Wars, together. So I saw Star Wars with Ursula K. Le Guin sitting on my immediate left. And we laughed our heads off. We loved that movie. And here, here's the thing. In 77, this was just a, a silly parody of space opera. It, it fitted in with Buck Rogers in the 25th century or Kentucky Fried Movie. In the mid-70s, there was a genre of ridiculous stoner parodies. Uh, and this one fit in perfectly. And we laughed our heads up. So uh, later, when she was more politically correct about Star Wars, I think I, I can remember um, her heartily laughing throughout the entirety of the first Star Wars movie. And the other thing I remember distinctly from that time is there was an end-of-the-year class party. And so it was in one of the students' apartments. It was too crowded. Um, and, and she was sitting on the floor next to an armchair with one of the Barstow Five gals uh, in the armchair and, and Ursula just simply sitting on the floor talking to people. So at that point, I was 25. She was uh, 47. I thought of her as immensely old when I was, uh, you know, because that's what 25-year-olds think. But she was only 47 at the time. And it was, um, it was a wonderful uh, month, I'll put it that way. And afterwards, it was simply a, um, a correspondence between us. We didn't stay particularly close. Letters would pass back and forth. They were short letters, less than a page always from her. Uh, and only when there was a reason to be in communication, and there really wasn't many reasons to be in communication. So um, the letters that I got from her, I saved them, and I, they were special enough, because they always would contain a joke. Every Ursula letter or email would be kind of goofy and jokey. She liked puns, she liked to make uh, wordplay and various kinds of uh, jokes. So I saved them, and I put them in a special place, a place so special. I can't find them anymore. <laughs> it's that special place. I'm pretty sure they still exist somewhere in my house. So I'm going to tear my house down, right down to the studs at some point, and I'm going to find those damn letters. But uh, right now, I don't know where they are. So let me talk about her as a writer a little bit now. Um, and this is, um, I find, peculiar. All of her novels are really good. Some are great. All are interesting and there's a lot of them. But right from Rockinon's World to the last novel, Lavinia, particularly fine one, they're all really good and interesting. The, her novellas are very often superb, and there's a lot of them. And there's a big book at the back that is her collected novellas. That's got to be one of the best books ever. Her short stories are often great. Nine Lives, one of the best short stories ever. And um, she would use short stories to experiment. She would play around and she would try goofy things or she would write the story backwards or she would do surrealism, realism, metaphysics, um, um, metafiction, and uh, mainly she used short stories to experiment and a lot of it's really good. And her nonfiction is really smart. There's about five books of, of essays about science fiction, and she's clarifying for people, what is this thing going on? Why did she end up in science fiction and fantasy? Uh, and she does a really good job of it. And it, it basically, her nonfiction is a defense of doing more than the domestic realism of the 1950s American academic slash New York um, establishment. 
Her, what she's saying is literature was always bigger than that. Literature is just part of story. Story is Paleolithic, probably pre-human. And in any case, it's a realm that has always been a form of fantasy and literary realism of the domestic type that was high modernism's goal in the 30s, 40s, and in the academies in the 50s is just a tiny, tiny um, slice of the pie chart of the greater picture of story. And that's really what her nonfiction says in quite a bit of detail. Um, and uh, her poetry, I, well, let me talk about what I think she, one of her strongest qualities as a writer is what I call the clean line. What I mean by that is, comes out of surfing movies. We would watch surfing movies in the 70s, whole crowds of us in Southern California. We'd watch people surf. There'd be like 500 surfing rides in a row, and that would make the movie. It's crazy. But um, the, there were surfers up there that on the wave, and the waves are always different. You're adapting yourself to the wave as it comes, and you're riding it. People were too Baroque and elaborate. They did too many switchbacks. They did too many spinners. They'd come off the wave and then come back down. The audience would laugh or jeer. You know, surfers, ah, you're an idiot. You know, they hated that kind of stuff. Then there would be the surfers, kind of like Jerry Lopez, that would do a clean line. It was perfectly fitted to what the wave gave them. And then everybody's like, oh my God, that's so beautiful. The clean line is an appropriate uh, form-fitting function or sentences that flow, that get to the point, that stay focused the whole way through. Ursula has a really clean line in everything that she ever wrote. And I um, admire this because one of the things it takes is focus on what is your story really about. So if you're writing a novel, there's two years that are passing, you're reading about it, doing research for it, you learn lots of stories. And what happens to me is I think, well, all these stories are so great, I have to put them all in. I'm, I, I go into a fit, an obsessive fit, I'm thinking, that's so interesting, I can't possibly not include it, and so is this, and so is that. And so my novels kind of like, they begin to, um, bulge, as I want to tell every great story that ever occurs to me during the two years of writing the novel. It's, uh, you know, it's something I can't control. Ursula, she would know what the story needed to tell you in order to make the maximum effect for however long it was. So her novels aren't very long, and they're in, pro in proportion to how long they are because she made them as long as they needed to be. Let me, I want to read a sentence to you. Yeah, this is a little section. I want to just give you a sense of it. It is always the year one here. Only the dating of every past and future year changes each New Year's Day, as one counts backwards or forwards from the unitary now. So it was spring of the year one in Ehrenrang, capital city of Carhide, and I was in peril of my life and did not know it. I was in a parade. I walked just behind the Gossel Wars and just before the king. It was raining. Rain clouds over dark towers, rain falling in deep streets, a dark storm-beaten city of stone through which one vein of gold winds slowly. It's that image, you can just see it. And I think her sentences, this, this comes from the very first pages of Left's Hand of Darkness. It struck me at the time and I've never forgotten it. I could find it very quickly um, when I was putting this talk together. Her sentences are like that line of gold. They run through the thing and they are um, a, a kind of living wire of thought 
that you can follow when you read it. And that, I think, is really part of her uh, talent as a writer. Her sentences are like that line of gold. They run through the thing, and they are um, a, a kind of living wire of thought that you can follow when you read it. And that, I think, is really part of her uh, talent as a writer. Earlier to you, so you can accept it. Um, she's also, um, uh, that's what makes her uh, uh, available to so many readers. Almost any reader who enjoys any kind of fiction can actually understand Le Guin. You don't have to be a specialist in science fiction or know the history of science fiction. She can indeed be your entry jug for that reason. And she's, there's also a playfulness to her, a playfulness and a sense of humor, even in her um, heaviest stories. And maybe it's not true, say, of Tohanu, but for every one of her novels, no matter how much she is basically a serious writer, um, there's a, a playfulness in the prose and in, the, and in the, the talk between the characters, which is, and I wanted this picture up here to kind of convey that that's a quality in her writing right there. So there's something that you can only put together as a kind of a gestalt that has to do with um, uh, intelligence and creativity, uh, a kind of a vision, uh, a warmth. The warmth is important, and I'm going to come back to that. And it adds up to something that we often call wisdom or greatness. I'd like, I prefer the word greatness, because who knows what wisdom is in this world. But the, the great artists have some quality that actually, as you might be able to tell from what I'm saying now, you can't quite put your finger on it but you know it's there when you've read enough of that writer. It doesn't mean that they are the finest stylists or the most poetical. In fact, that is often the surfer that's doing too many turns. It's more has to do with the content of what she's saying. And it doesn't have to do with being deadly serious. You don't have to be, and I don't want to even name the writers who try to convince you that they're important by their deadly seriousness. That isn't what she would do. So, Now I want to uh, move on to uh, my last encounter with her, which was perfectly pleasant and, and beautiful. So nothing sad about it. it. It was an accident that it was the last time that I saw her, but because uh, I expected to again, and it happened up in um, Oregon. What happened is I had begun going on book tours, and when I went through Portland, I would I would uh, contact Molly Gloss. And Molly Gloss was another student of Le Guin's that um, Le Guin met in a writing class that she ran in Portland. She ran into Molly Le Gloss. Molly Gloss ran into her. The, Molly is about 75 now. They were very close. They became very close friends. And Molly is a wonderful writer and wonderful person. And, and I had met her through some other science fictional context. And so I'd, she became the mediator or the one saying, well, if you're having lunch with me, have lunch with Ursula too. And I go, right on. I'm ready for that. So we began to get together. And um, uh, one time when I got together with Ursula, th this must have been in the, I reckon now it must have been about 2007 or 2008, she mentioned that her older brother Carl had just turned 80 and that he had gotten a feshrift from uh, his friends in his university. Carl Kruber was an academic who wrote mostly about romantic poetry, a great book on Byron and the romantics, um, uh, somewhere maybe in Virginia, Virginia Tech or Virginia State. And he said, uh, Ursula's gone, man, my brother, all his friends put together this feshrift, and everybody, is, what, a, what a cool thing that was. And I could see on her face that uh, she thought it was indeed a really cool thing. So, did I bring this? Yeah, I did. 
uh, 80 exclamation point. Memories and reflections on Ursula K. Le Guin. What can you give a writer who has everything? This is the back cover of this book. In 2009, Ursula K. Le Guin turned 80. For decades, she has shared with all her readers the gift of her writing. In return, Kim Stanley Robinson wanted to give her a very special present. This is not true. <clears throat> a feshrift, privately commissioned, sumptuously bound anthology of pieces written in her honor, Karen Joy Fowler and Debbie Notkin, those are the ones who did it, um, gathered personal essays, poems, stories, and academic articles for readers and writers who love Le Guin's work. The presentation and copy of this book was given to her, and then it got published by Aqueduct Press later on. Well, this is just Karen and Debbie being nice, because I think I mentioned it to Karen Fowler. Oh, Ursula would sure loved her brother getting a feshrift, and then Karen took it from there. But they were just, Karen was like giving me credit for the idea. Well, I think this actually upped my credit with Ursula as well. <laughs> so that was a very nice thing because these lunches were quite fabulous through the late 90s, me going up to Portland. The, you know, a, a book signing is a book signing, but when you have lunch with uh, Ursula and Molly beforehand, it becomes much more of a special event. So, a couple years later, out of the blue, an email, this is by, time, by now we're in email land, from Le Guin, hey Stan, as I think I told you I was planning to, I took the, your rear, years of rice and salt to read on a fairly stressful trip to New York and Ottawa. It was a most wonderful traveling companion. The book I always knew you'd write. You indicated that it was maybe the book of your heart. I should think it would be. It is so full of lifeblood, rich and warm. The devices are elegant and fascinating, and the people remain intensely human and faithful to their knowledge. I love the ending. What a grand book. Thank you, dear Stan. And so that's a great email, right? Uh, I'm thinking, wow, it blew my mind. It actually serves as my bookmark in my copy of The Years of Rice and Salt as a permanent thing. Um, and also, to, she always called me a Kim Stan. She would, and it, this was her name for me. Because of my original schizophrenia and our original relationship, it was always, um, sometimes you'd call me Stim Can. So uh, when she signed my copy of The Dispossessed to Kim slash Stan, underneath that Stim slash Can, um, you know, love Ursula. And so, and one time she said, yeah, Kim Stan, it's, it's one of the Stans, it's in Central Asia. It's, 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 kind, of, it's kind of a sloppy country. It's a kind of a, uh, you know, uh, it's kind of a mess. <laughs> So when she actually said, thank you, dear Stan, well, this is, this is a little, Ursula, this is not a mistake, I'm positive. So all these good things happening, and Charles Goodrich, uh, who ran a program at Oregon State, which is in Carvales, said, will you come give us a talk? We have a weekend on sustainability issues. It's a big festival. Everybody's going to display their cool stuff. Carvales, total hippie town. Uh, they're going to love it. And would you come speak? And I said, if you can get Ursula, then I'll come. And he said, yeah, well, I was thinking of trying that. And I said, well, look, tell her. I'll, I'll pick her up in Portland. I'll drive her to Corvallis. I'll drive her back. She wouldn't have to do anything. Door-to-door -door service. It's like lift before lift. He said, it would be me. And he goes, OK, I'll try it. And she wrote back to him and said, yeah, I'll do that. So suddenly, for the first time, after meeting in the 70s, and this is like 2013, I think, 
Uh, we're doing an event together at Oregon State, and we planned it. We planned it down to a T. Emails, actually, a couple months. Let's go. We worked it out. Eventually, we'd go back and forth, uh, 10 minutes each, three times each, and read for an hour. She didn't want to talk at all. She wanted to read only. She wanted to read her poems most of all. And I said, fine. And it was something that I've been doing with friends if we actually have a gig on stage where you read each other's work in a small section, because this is such a fun thing to do. The audiences know it's unusual. Um, it's, it's, it's only going to happen that one time. And so she agreed to that, too. So uh, I read um, three or four of her poems. We, we decided that we wouldn't give 10 minutes to each other, but only five minutes to each other, so that we had most of the time reading our own stuff. And, and she read from my book, Shaman, which had just been published a, a little bit before. And she said, oh, God, finally you're done with these immortal... I'm so tired of your immortal characters. So suddenly I... Uh, it wasn't like she ever hid this from you, because as an aside, I will say, if there's ever anything that Ursula didn't like that you were doing, it was like you were immediately slapped like a mosquito. It's like, she was very dialectical and she took no shit. So um, if she was annoyed or irritated, like I, once I made a joke about Virginia Woolf, don't you joke about Virginia Woolf. Um, one time I said, you know, your book Sea Roads, which is a very beautiful story collection about a coastal town in Oregon, I said, you know, there's not a single nice man, a male character in that entire book. She goes, eh. she said, well, don't say that. Fifteen years later, I was reading an interview with her, and she says, Stan Robinson doesn't think there's any good men characters in Sea Roads, but he forgot about the mailman. And I'm going, yeah. I definitely forgot the mailman. So you couldn't mess with her. And uh, what I realized is that she really did love Shaman because she herself had this love for Native Americans, for primitive, what we, her father would call primitive cultures, for, for the first peoples, as we would call them now. She loved that stuff with all her heart, and so she liked my novel Shaman, and she read from it. And she read a scene that I never would have read to any audience ever. I wouldn't have had the courage. Where Thorne is dying, he's talking to Lou, and he's trying to pass along the oral knowledge that loses, that you lose when people die in an oral culture where there is no writing. He's trying to pass it along in a last series of talks. She read that aloud, and this, the hair was standing up off the back of my neck. It was probably the, the most intensely, uh, uh, something between appalled and amazed and um, happy that I've ever felt on stage. It was scary stuff, but she didn't care. It was, it was one of those flat, effective uh, readings that she was so good at. It was a quite an astonishing moment for me. And so we finished. You can see this on YouTube. We're, afterwards, we stood, we held hands, we bowed like a theater troupe of two. We were totally geeked out. There were 800 Oregonians in plaid with beards and wool. <laughs> it had been raining all day. It was her audience, absolutely. And 800 Oregonians giving us a standing ovation at the end of a reading, which you don't usually get. And I looked at her and I, I thought to myself, you know, we are... This is exactly what we became writers not to be doing, is <laughs> up on stage like this, geeking out. You can see it actually on the YouTube, where both of us are like, okay, get us out of here. You know, get us to the bar. We drank some scotches. That night, she said, uh, we did good. And um, the next day was actually the best part. We drove back home to Portland, 
and she was a navigator. She said, don't take the freeway, that's so boring. I'll, I'll get us back home. We had no map, and I'm thinking, well, oh, okay, whatever. And she pretty much knew the way, the back road. She was maybe improvising and knew that all the ways would eventually get you back to Portland. And during that day, we had a talk, that drive back home. It was probably the best talk I ever had with her, and we talked about many things. One part of it was about Virginia Woolf, where we liked her sentence structures. Like, there's a thing that Woolf does, um, um, and I brought it up first, where whether people can be trusted with other people's reputations, even when you're not there and everything's on the line, I doubt. Or, uh, and then she, she laughed and she said, yeah, 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 there's another thing just like that that I like. Um, the fate of the British Empire rests on the sturdy shoulders of 12 men scattered across the globe, but no. <laughs> this is Wolf. And so uh, we had a good time, and at some point she said, well, Stan, why, I mean, you talk about climate all the time, you do all these talks, I can't talk, I only do fiction and poetry, and I'm thinking, yeah, and five books of nonfiction, but I didn't mention that. And she said, why don't you publish nonfiction? I said, well, it's, it's not good enough. It's, you know, I, I, it's, I, it's, it's just not good enough. And she, she said, that sounds like vanity. She said, don't be vain. Vanity is always silly. And I said, well, you know, it's not vanity. It's like, um, it's like I can't find the narrator when I'm doing nonfiction. She says, make Kim do it. <laughs> But Kim's just a student that gets A's, you know, he's, he's no good. She goes, well, make Stan do it. And I said, well, but Stan doesn't know what he thinks. And this is when I began to tell her that uh, the reason I'm a novelist is that whatever people talk to me, I get sort of accidentally hypnotized by them, and they seem totally convincing to me. I believe them. I'm thinking, yeah, that's right. Boy, this person, I'm, I'm very persuadable. And um, uh, labile, um, um, hyper-suggestible, I get accidentally hypnotized by people all the time. I'm explaining this to her, and she's going, well, whatever, um, just pretend. It's only 5,000 words long, so pretend that you're thinking. <laughs> I said, okay, maybe I will. And, and actually, I never have. Um, um, uh, I still feel like there's a problem with my nonfiction that has not been solved. But um, it was, I, well, that was when I realized how, how much I loved her, that even, that's when you realize you love, the, that you love someone, that when they are um, admonishing you, or even scolding you, you're thinking, oh, this is so great, this person <laughs> really understands me, and so it doesn't matter what they say to you at that point, because you're engaged with them. So, um, that was pretty much it, and I will say that um, when I got back to her house and dropped her off, I said, can you give me a rock, and she said, Definitely. And so she understood, because actually on her mantelpiece was a selection of rocks that she loved. And she knew that I was going to take a rock from her place, and I put him in my patio where I write. Underneath me now, in the middle, is Le Guin, but also right next to her, a, a rock from Virginia Woolf's place, also um, Robinson Jeffers, Cecilia Holland, um, uh, Shackleton's Beach in South Georgia. Um, uh, uh, Cherry Garrard's Little Rock Hut on Cape Crozier, Kenneth Rexross' place up at Devil's Gulch, and a big old chunk of Gold Rush-type rock from Gary Snyder's place. Gary warned me, he said, this probably isn't from this land, I think this is infill from somewhere else, but you can have it. Uh, and Ursula was the same, she understood. 
And she said, here, I'll give you some advice. If you ever forget where a rock is from, throw it into the garden immediately because you will never remember again where it came from. And you don't want to mess yourself up by having rocks you can't identify from where they're from. So she actually took me out to the garden. She said, I think this is from our place in Napa. It was serpentine, a big old, like a cube, like a, uh, maybe the size of a, twice the size of a golf ball. I almost brought it to show you, but when I suggested this to my wife last night, she was looking at me like, Stan, it's not show and tell. You're not in fifth grade. Do not take the rock down there. So, and I have to admit, it's an ordinary rock. It would not be, you know, at show and tell, it might be okay. Um, so I have that rock back from her, and that was um, the last time I saw her. And we had good emails since then, and she's quite funny. And I guess to wrap up, I would want to say that maybe there should be a book of memories like people used to do. Um, after, especially before YouTube and film, um, there's a great book of memories by, of Byron by people who knew him. I particularly value ones of Virginia Woolf herself and of Joyce Carey. And although Ursula is well represented on screen, you know, on YouTube and in films and all that, it, nevertheless, a, a collection of memories of people she influenced and impacted, I think, would be a great thing. Because she's going to end up um, remembered and read because the books are so beautiful. And then people are going to wonder, what was she like? And the, actually now, maybe YouTube has replaced those books, but what people might say about her would be like me. And what I'm curious about, because after all this that I've told you, I was by no means one of her closest friends or associates or even younger writers who loved her. By, most of those were women. You would have to go to Molly Gloss and Karen Joy Filer and Eileen Gunn and Gwyneth Jones and um, Vonda McIntyre and Kelly Link, and the list would go on until there would be literally scores of women writers for whom Ursula was the great mama bear. And I once saw her with a very young woman um, kind of kneeling before her as she was signing books. I've written a novel. I've written a novel. Will you light a blurb? Ursula's like, look, I only write blurbs for women publishing their first novels. And she goes, it is my first novel, and I'm a woman. <laughs> so Ursula said, all right, send it to me. <laughs> so um, she supported, and she knew that science fiction had begun very much of a male-centric genre, and that because of her prominence in our field, she had changed that by example and was an exemplary figure. And those are the people that I think need to be, um, their thoughts need to be collected um, while we all still have them. And that would be a beautiful addition to the canon, a kind of a fesh shrift for um, her 100th birthday or whatever. Um, while we still got around, maybe we should make it her 90th birthday. But that would be a good way to remember uh, one of the greatest writers in, in science fiction history who changed the game, where now, Everybody cool does science fiction because Ursula showed that it was the best way to communicate the reality that we live in right now. So what I say, for me it's been easy. I mean, I came in in the 70s and I still have a, a chip on my shoulder about the size of a, you know, the Transamerica Tower or the, the Salesforce Tower uh, against um, the mainstream world of New York and of, and of literary academia for the way that they put down science fiction back in those years. But on the other hand, despite the size of the chip on my shoulder, the, the gravity is gone. 
Ursula took away the gravity of that situation by force of will and by coming at the right time with a lot of other people and holding people's feet to the fire and being tough when she had to and being um, one, of the, one of the great writers of our time. So that is my Ursula. Thank you. Thank you, Stan. All right, warm up your questions. I'm going to get a couple in first. And um, well, that was really, thank you so much for, for, for putting that together. Um, that was really wonderful. Well, a total pleasure, as you can tell. Scoot a little closer to oh, me yeah. for our okay. for the folks at home. Hi, the folks at home. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We've uh, yeah, and um, uh, want to say if you're watching on the live stream now, uh, do uh, ask questions too. There's a chat box below. We'd love to get some questions from folks uh, at home and um, and and folks here as well. We're going to have somebody walking around with a mic uh, in a little bit. Keep an eye on them. Get uh, their attention, and they'll hand you the mic. Um, let me, oh, there we go. Thank you. Now we're gonna have that happen. Um, let's go back to, uh, to the top of your, uh, of your talk. So you, you uh, Dr. Robinson, Dr. Kim, or Dr. Stan Robinson. Kim, um, you, Dr. Kim. <laughs> so so you, you got your, your PhD at UCSD, um, and that seems, like sort of an unusual, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just uh, not aware of it, but were, were there a lot of, uh, it seems like a lot of folks just sort of were just jumping into writing. Was that a, did, did you hold off on, on publishing? Did you feel like you wanted to get to a certain level or learn certain things before you? Um, the, the PhD was a job. It, it paid me. In those years, it paid me enough that I could write on my own, and it was the it was the path of least resistance, and as I told you, I felt uh, uncomfortable about it. I thought I should have been a lumberjack or a deep-sea fisherman or something, or maybe just a homeless person, but I was in grad school as a job. And then I, I thought it was a useless job for being a writer, where you need to actually learn things about life instead of about, um, instead of about literature. But over the long haul, it was obviously a really good thing to to learn the canon. My PhD is not in creative writing, which I think is, well, an MFA, I guess is what they call it now, but it's in literature, in English and American literature with a, a little bit of French involved. It was a good education in the canon, and I, I know English and American literature in a way that, well, I know it way better now than when I got the PhD, because it takes decades to read all that stuff. But I've remained an English major my whole life, and I love it dearly. So maybe I was doing it for love. I mean, there was nothing else I wanted to do more. I enjoyed teaching students. I taught nothing but freshman composition, because that was my 70s political position. That, and also my way of saying, English departments are like um, Catholic priesthood, and I'm a Protestant. There should only be writers and readers. There should be not this, this um, level of priests in between the two. So I taught freshman composition for 11 years. And I loved it. I, I, I improved a lot of writers who were good to begin with, but they didn't know it. They had been messed up by high school or by their own preconceptions of what good writing was. And I was like the, the, horse, the, the freshman whisperer. I could release them from this feeling. When they were 
when English language is their original language, I could improve their writing hugely. Um, English as a second language is a, is a different problem and a lot harder. So that was my thing. I mean, I was lucky. I had Frederick Jameson as my advisor for the first half of my PhD. He said, yeah, write about Philip K. Dick, the greatest living American writer, he said to me. And this is like 1975. And, and he was in the English department, or did you kind of go outside? And... He was in the French department, but he was my French teacher. In fact, my, my uh, exposure to Fred Jameson was equally beautiful. There was this guy with a, speaking French with a strong New Jersey accent, and he, uh, he wouldn't speak any English to us, and he was given these, these plays by Sartre and Camus, the really short plays that only have like a hundred-word vocabulary. It was fabulous. So my education was good, and in the end, it was probably the right thing for me. Yeah. Did, did you learn anything from Ursula that you were then applying in your teaching while you were still teaching there? Oh, well, she was teaching creative writing. She was teaching the writing of short stories, and I was teaching freshman comp. What I would say is that she was really good at trying to understand what the writer wanted to do in their story and then talk to them about how they might do that more effectively. She, was, she, she ran it like a clarion workshop. And she, in fact, even workshopped one of her own stories in our group. Here's my story. And that's another time I got slapped down. I said, uh, well, that's a very whimsical story. She said, I hate that word, whimsical. <laughs> and, and yet that story has never been published. And, uh, <laughs> and Ursula could have published her laundry list if she wanted to for, for about 10 years. And so I feel like she might have thought again about that story, which was really goofball. And I think it's probably a great story. I was just being a jerk. And I also cha I challenged her as to a couple of the books she had assigned in that class as were they appropriate or not or good enough and poof, it was like why was I so stupid as to do that it was, yeah um, you know here at Long Now we're all about time and I have a couple couple questions for you as a writer over time and and reflecting on Ursula writing for time I mean she was a, a trailblazer. Um, as a writer, but she had this interesting, um, in a way she kind of broke through some things and, and is in a transitional moment where she, um, uh, she talks about how after the first three Earthsea books, she's thinking about writing the fourth and she was hearing criticism and thinking about how there wasn't a kind of full uh, female character and, and, and there's criticism about that and her self-criticism about that, but she couldn't figure out how to, to write that. And that was something that she kind of broke through and eventually figured out how to write that. So in a way she was, you know, she, she, she was almost on the frontier and had to, had to figure out how to, how to go. Um, I, I wonder, um, did, did you, have a, you have a perspective on that? Uh, yeah, thank you for that, because I want to, it's something I would have added if I'd had time, is that I think Ursula felt that she hadn't come to feminism in her fiction fast enough, and that Tuhanu was a corrective to the patriarchal bias of the Ursi trilogy. Well, and there have been some critics who've agreed with that, and I think she's getting a bad rap, because Left Hand in Darkness is 1969, and then she had to watch the uh, incredible fireworks of um, Joanna Russ and of James Tiptree Jr., who Le Guin quickly knew it was Alice Sheldon, and they were in a close correspondence. Le Guin and Tiptree were good friends as pen pals, really close, actually, if you read the uh, correspondence. 
Uh, Le Guin and Russ didn't get on because Russ was uh, highly critical about an ordinary housewife in a normal heterosexual marriage with kids. And Ursula, uh, well, as I said, she didn't like any kind of criticism, and especially an unfair criticism, she would really uh, take against. And so I don't think she was fond of Russ, but she knew Russ was a really brilliant writer. Uh, funny, and at the level of the line, it was more than a clean line with Russ. It was. Uh, uh, a kind of a genius for sentence making. And I think Ursula felt like, well, I can be as good a feminist as Russ and Tiptree. I always have been. Left-handed darkness is foundational in that sense. And I think Le Guin comes out of um, Simone de Beauvoir, The Second Sex. That book appeared in English like an atomic bomb. And so it was a, a question of Ursula trying to uh, prove something that I think she had already proved. So there was a period where I think she was overemphasizing something that she didn't need to overemphasize at all. And it had to do with the dynamic with uh, Joanna Russ. That's my personal psychobiography, which I tell you the truth, I would not even have said aloud in a room with this many people if Ursula was still alive. In fact, I'm feeling a little uh, like, let's move on to the next <clears throat> Oh, well, but Ursula's not going to see it. <laughs> so. Uh, on, a, on a similar theme, though, about, you know, we're all individuals and we move through time. Society progresses and we progress through our lives, right? We all have things from our youth we may be embarrassed about, just not all of us are getting published and sharing that with the world. And so the, you know, the, the, the earliest stories, some things that you might have regrets or have written differently. So I'm curious to, in, in, to ask you this question, but also kind of reflecting as she sort of looked back in that same kind of way. Um, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier, so last, maybe two years ago, you put out Green Earth, mm -hmm. and, and Green Earth is looking back at three novels you'd, you'd written as, um, as a trilogy before, and re, uh, bringing the science up to date, and I'm, I'm not sure what all, how you retrofitted that, but can you tell us something about that? Had it been bugging you? Is something you needed to do? Was it something that an opportunity came up that they were going to republish them? Or what's kind of the background around Green Earth? And how did yeah. you think about that and kind of going back and either correcting or, or, or going back to your previous work? Well, I mostly don't look back. I, I can't read my own work without just seeing it as a series of things. Uh, I see the things that I didn't fix. It's like looking at the backside of a stage set or something. So I don't read my own work. But I was reading a book by Peter Matheson in a bookstore, Shadow Country, and suddenly in his introduction he said, this used to be three novels. I think it starts out with Killing Mr. Watson. And I shrunk it down because I decided that it was too long and it would... The, the, he said the middle volume was like the belly of a dachshund. I'm thinking, oh. and I thought, and I'm reading that, I'm thinking, and he won the National Book Award for Shadow Country, the, the compressed version, which is very well deserved. I thought, damn, I wish I could do that with my uh, Washington, D.C. trilogy. And it was a thought that had never occurred to me until I read about Peter Matheson doing it. And I love Peter Matheson's writing. He's a great novelist. So I thought, I wonder if I can do that. And my British editor, Jane Johnson, a lovely uh, person and editor. She, I asked her first, because it was her in England and the people at Bantam in the States, uh, um, uh, Anne Grohl, my editor there. And it was Jane, very dynamic. She said, sure you can. And then she talked uh, Anne Grohl into it, and Anne was agreeable. 
and so I got to do it, which is a rare thing to get to go back. And I pretty much did the same as Matheson. I did update some of the science that had, in 10 years, it had become either wrong or I'd realized it was wrong or it was redundant in that everybody already knew it. So I cut this text by about 15%, and truthfully, most of it was just the extra verbiage of trying to write every, down everything I knew, as I told you, everything I knew about Washington, D.C. Well, I'd lived there for four years. So it wasn't like Mars, where I wouldn't change a word of my Mars trilogy, even having reread it. I think it's as solid as a boulder. But with my D.C. stuff, do you really need to know the details about uh, where the marble for the Washington Monument came from? No, you don't need to know that. So I cut it by about 15% and it got it down to one volume called Green Earth, which I think is the rescue of that novel. Uh, it's a, it's, uh, as far as I can tell, which is not very far, it's far better in a compressed version. So I'm very grateful to Jane Johnson and Ann Grohl for letting me do that. Hardly ever happens. Uh, and we'll get uh, to audience questions in one second. Last thing before we open it up. Uh, you do have this new, uh, your new book, Red Moon, just oh, yes. came out in the last month. Yep. Um, and it's wonderful. Thank you. And it's, it's, so it uh, involves China and the moon and uh, quantum phones and, uh, and, and AI. And um, ha uh, so no spo we're, no, we're in a no spoiler zone, but I'm curious what... Um, are there are there are there things you would recommend when I when I uh, read it, um, you know there there are there are references to current China um, policies and and things like that. Are are there things that you would suggest uh, to as as frames of reference to to get into this or just dive right in? What are your well, recommendations? It, it would be hard. Um, I I read widely, and the more I read, the less I understood when it came to China. And I, luckily, from my UCSD freshman writing program at Fourth College, I had a friend, K.Y. Wong, who was um, uh, from China. I didn't know much about him, but we played, we played ping pong together and I couldn't even return his shot. Uh, we played tennis together and he tried to play tennis like it was ping pong and, and so he couldn't return my shots. So we started playing badminton together and, and we had a lot of fun. He, we were good buddies, but I knew very little about him and I didn't even know what K.Y. stood for. And so this is like the 70s, and I, it was Kim that did all that. It wasn't me. So um, he, uh, when I got the idea that I wanted to do a novel where China was occupying the moon first, which I really think will happen, I tried to find him. Well, if you Google K.Y. Wong, there are like four or 5,000 of them that come up. And, and this is an embarrassing thing to admit, but I hadn't seen him for 45 years. And I was looking at picture of Chinese man after Chinese man. After, they're all K.Y. Wong. Well, I could be him, I mean, could be him, I don't know. You know, I'm such an Anglo, I can't tell, I'm, I'm an idiot. But also, who knows how the people age, blah, 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 blah. I finally found him through the UCSD Alumni Association. And the moment I saw his photo, it was like exactly KY. I would have known him you know, instantly. It was the same, same face. And so he brought me to China. He told me, Read uh, Wang Hui, uh, China in the 20th Century by Wang Hui, who's a Chinese scholar that now works at a New York University. That's one of the only books. It's basically a history, but it gives you history in a way that allowed me to also add on the future. And he's called a new leftist, uh, Wang, and he hates that. It, first of all, it gets him in trouble back home. 
Um, but it gave me a lot of thoughts. As, a, as an old leftist, I'm thinking about, in China, what is a new leftist and what does it mean? And so that's about the only book I could recommend. Everything else is interesting but doesn't, not illuminating. And I might say that about my own book. Um, you'll see when you get to the last line. Um, and if you have a question, Rose is right there. Just, uh, she's got the mic. Um, so the sci-fi that's being written in China right now, the Chinese science fiction, so uh, Three-Body Problem um, yeah. is, is a lot. And you've, I know you've read at least a little bit uh, more than that. What are your thoughts on, is, and is that, are you excited about um, what you're seeing there? Are there other uh, areas, are there other? You've, you've talked before um, about how not every country can write sci-fi, if I'm quoting you, you correctly, that, that, that sci-fi doesn't happen, that different types of things happen sometimes in different cultures. Am I saying that right? I think that's right. I think science fiction is an expression of an industrialized country and that the reason that you get magical realism in Latin America and the generation of Garcia Marquez is that that's the appropriate genre for Latin America. That's the realism of Latin America. Science fiction is the realism of the United States and of England. And now every nation, as it gets industrialized and has a vision of its own future as a nation state, you get national variations on science fiction. And China, of course, is booming right now. They have a sense of their future. They, have a, um, they want to read about China in the future specifically. So Liu Shishin, and the problem for us is what gets translated into English. So Lucius in uh, Three-Body Problem, he and I did an event together in Beijing. He's a wonderful man, very uh, sly, low-keyed, funny, uh, self-deprecating, but obviously pretty brilliant guy. He says, well, I, I'm, I'm a computer programmer from a coal plant. We closed the coal plant down. I had to do something, so I started writing science fiction. So the Three-Body Problem is a good example, I think, of what they're doing. And his short story collection called The Wandering Earth, which is about 20 short stories, it's an expensive trade paperback. That's even better for showing what Chinese science fiction is doing right now, because he ran the table. Every possible, I think he won their Nebula Award for short story six years in a row by trying every possible variation. And what I say to people who are, haven't read him yet is he's like Arthur C. Clarke and Philip K. Dick combined into one writer, if you can wrap your head around that. If you know Clark and Philip K. Dick, if you can imagine the two of them in one writer, you get Liu Shishin. I also, there was a young woman who wrote Folding Beijing. Uh, Jian Ping is her first name, but I forget her last name. Maybe it was just Hu. Uh, but Folding Beijing is on the internet as a short story. You can just um, uh, Google it and it comes up as a free story to read excellent on uh, a science fiction story of what Beijing feels right now, but done completely in science fiction terminology. So yeah, it's gonna, there's going to be more of it, but the question is what gets over translated into uh, English? And, and uh, that conversation between the two of you is on the internet as well. It's a Berggruen Institute uh, conversation mm -hmm. here in San Francisco. Um, do, are, are most of the writers, do you have a set, do you, do you feel like you've got a sense of what is happening there? It's not all getting translated, but I wonder, and, and, and is he, he's still within China? Because it is sort of interesting, like folks are writing from within China um, things that may be critical of. Uh, well, yes, uh, but it's all coded and it's all science fiction, so that means that it's non-representational, and he's getting away with things that I find amazing, and it reminds me of Philip K. Dick writing 
against McCarthy during the McCarthy era, mm. but nobody, first of all, no one was reading them, and secondly, it was science fiction, so, so what, even though they were very obviously allegories for the McCarthy situation. So some of Lucian's writing, I think, is treads a very fine line, and I, I have no idea how he gets away with some of the stories that he's gotten away with. I think we've got a question over here. Uh, hi. Uh, I'm a nonfiction writer, so apologies in advance if this is naive. Um, but I'm interested in Werner Vinge's idea of the singularity, which we now so sometimes use as a shorthand for AI, but I, I take him initially to be talking about really the limits of the imagination. Um, that there will be you know, a transformative event that is so transformative that it's hard to imagine what happens after that. And if it were true that we were approaching an event like that, we would notice by the sort of foreshortening of the imaginative distance. Um, and so when I look back and I think about classic science fiction from the 50s, you know, they're imagining like traveling to the moon and computers that can understand you when you speak to them and so forth. And we're now 75 years uh, into the future and we have those things. Um, and at least from a pop culture standpoint, the science fiction that I've seen recently, you know, the film Her or Black Mirror is all set like five to 10 years into the future, not, you know, 100 years and so forth. So I'm just curious how you think about what it means to write science fiction in 2018. Um, do you think there's something to this idea that it's becoming more challenging to kind of project the imagination out beyond uh, that horizon, or if you think there's sort of a tension between um, our ability to, to imagine future things versus the, the pace of technological change itself. How do you think um, about that? I think it is getting harder. Um, I don't believe in the singularity, and I, what I think, well, what's an, an allegory for, like, like I don't believe in time travel, what, but it's still a useful story device. What I think the singularity is about is uh, we've already passed that were in the singularity or passed through it. It happened back in 2008 with the financial crash or it happened back in the 70s. The sense that we're out of control of history and someone else is in control of it is what it's an allegory for. The way the zombies are an allegory for the precariat and vampires are an allegory for the 1%. You can change all of the big science fiction tropes into metaphors or allegoric, allegorical symbols of things that are going on right now. And then, Science fiction is always about the future, and it's always had, because the future is, whoa, infinite, or 75 billion years, depending on your cosmology, um, uh, near future science fiction has always been about the day after tomorrow, and you have, you have Gibson. Um, far future science fiction is a, a form of fantasy, like space opera, where almost anything can be explained, because it happens five million years from now. Uh, I've only done a little bit of that. Um, I've done a lot of near-future science fiction. The zone in between I find particularly interesting, where you're doing just what you're saying might be really hard right now. Future is 100 years out, 150 years out. Given everything that's going on right now and how fast everything is accelerating and how the trajectories are sometimes 180 degrees divergent between utopian futures and dystopian futures or even apocalypses. Um, how do you write that zone? Well, you just have to model it and pick one strand, tell one story and not try to convince yourself it's the only story or the true story or the most plausible story. It's just one story. So you, you run these things as thought exercises. And that zone is depleted, if you'll notice, if you read science fiction on a regular basis. A lot of near future stuff, a lot of space opera. 
uh, what I, you might call future history, that 100 years in the future zone, um, well, I like to try that, but I don't, and well, Alistair Reynolds, every once in, uh, I don't know contemporary science fiction well enough to name very many more. And, and I know I'm not the only one, but I basically don't have time to read anybody else except for a few friends. Uh, and not many friends are doing that future history, so I don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. um, do you have, um, so Redmond has just come out. Um, yeah. I'm sure you already are, are at work on the next, uh, some, something is in the works I would expect. At, at this point in your career, do you have uh, a list of what you want to do? Or are you just kind of examining the world when you are finishing up a project to think of what you're going to do next? How, how, are you, uh, how, how, are you, how are you mapping forward from here as far as what you're going <laughs> to... What, 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 what we can look forward to you from you? From oh, you yeah. Future? Well, um, I have a list, and I've checked off every box. And so I'm like, what am I going to do? So um, we could probably round something up here tonight. Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, my editor once said to me, "I said I'm running out of ideas." He goes, "Stan, I can solve that problem," <laughs> which I thought very reassuring. I found that very reassuring. So I, I, I don't know. I want to write a utopian novel. I want to write what I'm calling the good Anthropocene. That's what I'm writing now, and that is a, it feels like swimming uphill. And in fact, swimming up Yosemite Falls. Um, but, you know, it's just sentences. So um, that, I'm going to throw all the dice on, on that one. Mm -hmm. and, and then after that, I want to write a nonfiction book about the Sierra Nevada, just a backpacking book or um, Thoreauvian reflection. And that's already looking pretty far out in the future. And beyond that, I just think, you know, something will come to me. And partly because of this um, th thinking about Le Guin, I've been thinking short novels. You know, uh, as, a, as a form, like the sonnet to poetry, a 120-page novel, I'm, I haven't done those. Not, the last one I did at that length was like 1990. And so um, that's as much as I know about my future. Well, thanks for sharing it. Yeah. Got a question right here. Um, so a lot of Ursula Le Guin's world building is pretty political, like dispossessed. Uh, yes. Um, how did that influence you? And was that something you ever discussed? And also, do you think it explicitly colored your approach to the Mars trilogy? Well, thank you for that. Yes, yes and yes. Um, uh, and I'm glad you brought it up, because again, if I'd had more time, I'd talk about it, and I will now. Um, Ursula's politics were American leftist of a different variety than mine, but we were both the kind of American leftists that said, look, the front is borrowed, and we just take our different points of view and work together rather than the narcissism of small differences where leftists fight leftists because they're the only people that understand the nature of the argument. So um, the dispossessed is an anarchist uh, text and man, it is a very interesting and compelling thought experiment. What would it be like to live in an anarchist society? Because really anarchism is almost like you know, it's almost politically autistic, where everybody's free and you know, everybody's free contract between everybody and there are no rules. And she actually wrote me one of these emails to thank me for my introduction to um, uh, uh, Magpie uh, Killjoy's um, anarchist. Uh, I wrote the introduction. I said, anarchy can mean no rules or no ruler in the Greek. And I say it means no ruler, because you have to have rules. 
And even on Anaris, there's rules in the anarchistic society. It's like management of the commons. The commons was not a space where you could do anything. It was managed and regulated. And anarchism, as I understand it, would be a, a complete horizontalization of power and wealth. And that's the anarchist goal, a distant horizon that everybody should be shooting for. And so she and I came at it from our different angles. I was much more of a, a Marxist-Leninist. And, uh, and a statist. And so she, her anarchism, as she told me, came out of the Tao Te Ching. And she, her translation of the Tao Te Ching is fabulously good. And you need to cross-reference it with three or four others to realize how uh, amorphous and murky that document is. It's, uh, but she she's, comes to anarchism from the Tao and, and from that strain of, of Chinese literature that I think comes also from her father, the anthropological strain. So this is what, and also I stayed up all night to read The Dispossessed. I had a little science fiction library club, a hardback. It was like short and light. I got to what I call the Dickinson point, which is the point where you know you have to finish this book in that <laughs> sitting. It comes from Peter Dickinson, who does it all the time. But I got to that point with her, and it was like 1 a.m. So I stayed up to like 4 a.m. to read The Dispossessed. And when I was done, I was thinking, you can write a utopian novel and make it work as a novel. And that blew my mind. That was 1975. And, and it was a huge impact on the Mars Trilogy and everything that I've done since. Probably in, in terms of the content of, uh, rather than the form, the content, her influence comes to me mostly from left-handed darkness and from the dispossessed as uh, gender and politics. So she was really important. And I know she still is to all anarchists and, and mo all American leftists who are thinking about it. So thank you. Um, and you know, when you look at the left-handed lens of dark, left-handed darkness, it's a novel about uh, refugees and culture clash. It's a novel about gender and um, uh, and and sort of levels of trust. It's a it's a it's a novel where a society sees a potential to progress that's kind of offered to them and, and isn't sure if it's gonna kind of take the offer. I mean, two sides of two societies actually on, on, yeah. on that planet. Um, so it, it's, it's a pretty interesting foil for, for the moment we're in now with just some of those themes. Yep, uh, Left Hand is a great novel. I would say it's her masterpiece and, and one of the great novels of the 20th century. Uh, and it has to do with a couple of things. The, the Carhide is a feudal. The, the other society on the other side of the world is socialist in a bad Soviet totalitarian way. There isn't a capitalist society. There's only these two struggling, and both of them mired in their problems. So it has a lot of interesting political thoughts. I think she was thinking that maybe the two of them together was a portrait of the United States in the 1960s. Partly feudal, partly bad socialism, but no, no, no function, no real culture. And then the gender thing for me was that um, um, most of the time, gender isn't important for social life. Sometimes it is. Pay attention to that. And when I, my, when my wife and I had our first kid, then. Um, she's a scientist working 12 hours a day, six days a week, and um, at, when my boy was 10 weeks old, which um, I, I took over 
and was, was a caretaker of this child, uh, Mr. Mom, as they put it in the great movie by Michael Keaton. Um, I was Mr. Mom for years, and the left-handed darkness, this idea, the king was pregnant, which obviously I wasn't, but the king did a lot of bottle feedings, you know, that were very uh, maternal in their affect. And I thought, yeah, man, I, uh, the, what left hand helped me was to conceptualize the feelings that I had. The structure of feeling had changed because of that book. So I was just in, Kemmer had come along and I was, ex, I was in, in my female uh, existence and I was really happy. I, was, I thought I was pretty good at it. So, you know, this is, this is profound what literature can do for you. And, and she knew that. I think she knew she had hit it out of the park with that book. Pleasure right here. Thanks. Hi. Um, I love that sort of future history that you talked about. And uh, one that I would recommend very highly was, is by uh, Bruce Sterling, who was just here in his uh, Schismatrics Plus. Uh, it's a collection. And in fact, it, it's a novella, the story I'm referring to. It's fantastic. Um, my question is about, well, I walked in. And I thought Ursula, you know, Ursula Gwynn. I, I remember reading her when I was a, an adolescent, basically. I was trying to remember the name of the book there at the table, and I said, "You are the one that you know that kind of reminds me of Ishii." Huh? You know, <laughs> and I and she clued me in to the fact that her father. I mean, just a little bit. I mean, can you yeah. talk about that relationship and 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 that influence on her? Yeah, sure. Uh, because Thank Ishii, you. of course, is also sort of a, found, a cultural cornerstone here in California. Yeah. One of the first books I ever read. Yeah. Well, um, it was, I think, super important. You know, she was hanging out with Ishii in the house when she was a girl. Uh, he was a member of the household and came by a lot. He knew her. She knew him. And it means a lot to her. And for those who don't know, do you want to just... Uh, well, Ishii was... A, everybody knows, right? A Yurok Indian, the last of his tribe. Ishii, the last of his tribe. That was Theodora Krober's book about this man. Her who's, dad. Uh, yeah. Stumbled out of northeastern California after um, a disease plague had killed off um, his tribe. He was the last one left. And they could, as far as I could tell, he was the last one in his language group. And so uh, Krober said, well, I'm an anthropologist, and I, suddenly I have a, a, a Native American, the last of his tribe. Um, they gave him a job as caretaker. He thought that the greatest uh, accomplishment of, um, of uh, Western civilization was cigarette lighters. Or maybe it was matches. I think it was actually just matches. He was amazed. Uh, so uh, Theodora wrote Ishii, um, um, last of his tribe. Krober was a prominent anthropologist. And, um, Ursula's great tribute to her dad, and I suppose her mom as well, would be Always Coming Home. Um, and that novel by Ursula, if you look at the table of contents of Always Coming Home, and you look at the table of contents of her dad's book, The Handbook of the California Indians, they are identical. She had to have had her dad's book's table of contents in hand when she constructed Always Coming Home. So it's a tribute to her parents, and, and it's, a, it's a beautiful uh, gesture in that regard. And so I, am I right to say she's one of the first people bringing social science or, or anthropology or sort of in there? It seems like, um, because, uh, because Left Hand of Darkness is, is not an action. <laughs> no. Uh, it, well, it, is, it is an anthropologically, culturally yeah. analytical kind yeah. of uh, view, I, I, it feels like. Well, I would say that, again, those 50s guys 
uh, the science fiction writers of the broken generation were better than anybody remembers unless you go back and read them. And so uh, Chad Oliver uh, was a professional anthropologist and his books are quite good in anthropology. He wasn't anywhere near as prominent. Um, um, a rather minor science fiction writer of the 50s, but he was an anthropologist. I would say Jack Vance, in his um, um, ramshackle and, and uh, fun-loving way, was anthropological. And Edgar Pangborn, the planetary adventure was a kind of an anthropological thing, and people loved their planetary adventures. John Brunner, before Stand on Zanzibar. And so Brunner was doing social science in Stand on Zanzibar, that's very important, and his planetary adventures are a little anthropological. But Le Guin, as I said in my talk, was the one that foreground, the one that leaped to the fore. The books were not just anthropological, but also beautiful. So they were stories, that, and, and you had the sense of somebody that really knew something, that wasn't um, a scribbler making it up on the fly, but somebody that was resting on a body of of academic knowledge and then also first people's knowledge. So this is like the, the content of our uh, anthropology, not just the form of anthropology. So it gave her huge advantages and, and people could feel it. You know, going, whoa, this, you know, we've been a bunch of engineers and a bunch of scribblers and an advertising guy and New York science fiction writers, the, the generation of the golden age in the 40s were uh, coming to it from their love for the future but she was coming to it from a completely different and um, maybe more intellectually, uh, well, I wouldn't want to say that, because actually the, you got to look at those 50s guys and Lee Brackett and Seal Moore, the women that were in that club, uh, Catherine McLean, and there's actually a good new book from Library of America, The Future is Female. It goes from 1927 up to uh, the big three, I call them, Le Guin, Rust, Tree. All these women science fiction writers were doing great work in every year from 27 to, say, 72. And so Lisa Yasek uh, edited that book, and it's a really good example of that we're forgetting, that there was just lots of good science fiction. But Le Guin was the one that brought it up to a level where everybody could see it. And one more question from, there we go. Uh, Pete Lyme from uh, reInvent here. Um, one of the things I love about your your science fiction is it basically pushes out into that middle ground. Um, you know, New York underwater in 2140, and the solar system filled out with human beings in a realistic way in 300 years or whatever. And then, how do we actually get to another solar system? You know, over generations in a starship. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's also positive. And, and so what I'm interested, I think this crowd would be interested in, is why is it that we don't see more of that middle ground science fiction? What is the difficulty about that? Or what is the reason that you don't see more of that? And two, why don't you see more positive science fiction? Because it seems to me one of the things politically in this country right now we even need is just more of a positive way. How does this all work? How do we go forward? How does it all come together? You know, how do we actually move forward? As opposed to this dystopian science fiction thing that's just so kind of prevalent that it just is so depressing, honestly. And it'll be interesting, the, the positive side and also that middle range side of how do we really get that more of that? Yeah. The, I'll take them one at a time. The middle zone is hard. Um, and I would say that it is also a matter of reader response. Um, some people like to read literature because it's about the world they're in right now and it's, and it's made exciting by mysteries or by romance or by intrigues of one kind or another or by fine writing, realism. So that's about now. 
And then there's a crowd that likes to read about uh, space opera, starships zooming about in the galaxy. The galaxy treated as a space that we can zoom around in. Um, and uh, people tend to like one or the other, or if they like one a lot, they don't like the other. But this is the law of the excluded middle. Nobody likes to read about fiction set 100 years in the future. The science fiction writers, you'd rather be zipping around the galaxy. The people writing realism want to read about right now, and it's just more science fiction. So you see what I'm saying. It's the law of the excluded middle. And if you go in that zone, you will. If you're H.G. Wells, you can pull it off, or you can try. Uh, to me, because it's an empty ecological niche in the world of stories, it's actually there's some new stories to tell there. And you, what you need is an audience that doesn't care and is willing to try it. And so you have to construct that audience yourself. And I think I have, to the extent that I have. And you know, I am not a gigantic bestseller relative to many of my, my contemporaries. So um, then the other one, the positive and the negative, Utopias are also hard. It was The Dispossessed that was the first successful utopian novel. Before that, you had maybe Huxley's Island, um, Robert Graves' Seven Days in New Crete, uh, and you had some um, interesting attempts to make a story, going right back to H.G. Wells' A Modern Utopia. But mostly the stories are a way, what Damon Knight used to call a walk through the zoo. They'd get you, well, here's our sewage plant, and oh, here's the House of Parliament, and the plot would be a way to show you the utopia. And only at the dispossessed, I would claim, is the first uh, great utopian novel. They're, it's like combining a soap opera with architectural blueprints. So how natural does that sound? <laughs> so I've lost some sleep over that one. And I think um, it's hard. All right, we're, uh, we're, we're just about at our time. I, I did get a note um, from Laura Welcher, I believe, the head of our Rosetta Project, our Endangered Languages uh, Project here along now, who points out that Ishii was actually Yahi, uh, not Yurok. Oh, OK. And that, in fact, there are still uh, some speakers of Yurok, so. Oh. Um, so, yeah. But um, <laughs> let's. <laughs> Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Laura. Sorry, Ursula. <laughs> um, Fact-checking live on stage. Um, so, so you're going to stick around. Uh, you're going to you're going to sign books uh, and and please come up, say hi, uh, get yeah. your book signed. Yeah. Um, maybe one last question about Ursula and the community of science fiction writers, and or maybe sort of thinking about, you know, you were saying a couple things backstage about, you know. Science fiction is kind of a village. It's kind of a or a community. I don't know how how, how you would characterize it, but it's it's. Uh, I don't know if it's it it was more uh, a closer knit community in in an earlier time. There's a lot I've heard Greg Bear talk about kind of the con culture and in, in uh, all, all the uh, the conventions that would go on back in the day. I'm not sure if that's sort of still there, but is there um, and and Ursula while being this this star and this female star who got more, uh, um, maybe more recognized than uh, you know a lot of other uh, female writers, um, as both a um, exemplar and as a, as a great artist, but also where she kept connected to the community. I think that 
there's a new documentary out about her, and you see writer after writer who says that she, you know, made this uh, this connection with, and she taught a lot of folks over the years. Is there something you want to say to kind of maybe end this about uh, her and the um, the community of, of of writers, whether it's an exemplar? Or, uh. Yeah, it, I'm I'm gonna think uh, on my feet here. Uh, always hard. And I'm going to say that it is, science fiction is like a small town that in some science fictional accident, like the cyclotron in a Philip K. Dick novel, it got blasted across space. It's all over the earth. It reconvenes at science fiction conventions on a regular basis. But m meanwhile, it's scattered everywhere. But it has the dynamics of a small town, um, the solidarity, the backbiting, all the, all the good, all the bad uh, of a small town. Soap opera and the yeah, blueprints. It's a, it's a, people talk about ghetto culture uh, from the uh, European ghettos, that there's an intense esoteric regard for each other and a private language. And the outside is seen as a, an outside, the mainstream, we used to call it. And so you would. Um, some people like it when the walls come down and you're just one group among the rest. Other people like it better if they're a big fish in a little pond and would prefer the walls to stay up. So all, that, all those dynamics are going on and um, I think there's always a, a kind of a mayor figure, the one that um, is the, the, everybody in the town trusts. Uh, and then there's the ambassador figure, the one that's made it big in the outside world but everybody in the small town likes and is proud of. So Bradbury was like an ambassador figure. He came out of fandom and out of the community, and he became a, a mainstream star in America and spoke for science fiction to the, and fantasy to the larger culture. And then the mayors, sometimes you don't know who they are. Gardner Dozois was mayor of science fiction for a long time. Connie Willis is mayor of science fiction. Uh, George R. R. Martin is both mayor and ambassador at the same time. Um, and so Ursula was one of those ambassador figures. This is what I'm thinking now, is that everybody in the community, almost everybody, except for the occasional you know, small town, the one, she had some knives in her back from people in the community that I think were jealous or envious. Uh, but mostly, we were intensely proud of her because she spoke well for science fiction. She did not go out to the world and say, well, uh, the kind of uh, implied tokenism, well, I did come from science fiction, but I'm so much better than that. That's why you're paying attention to me, and that's why I'm a star in the big world. And I could name X, Y, and Z that do that in their interviews. I find it annoying at best, sometimes maddening. Uh, I hate that kind of shit. And um, Ursula would never do that. And she, she wanted to be regarded as um, herself and a figure in American literature, but she also wanted uh, it to be understood that she had come out of the science fiction community. So she's one of those ambassadors, and I think there's real reason to be uh, proud of her, and I think she did a great job. I mean, every once in a while, on stage or in print, she would smack people for putting science fiction down, and it was often hilarious. You can look up online her, somebody had said science fiction has crawled back up out of the grave of genre, et cetera, or some phrase, and she made an entire short story out of it, a Lovecraft short story, where <laughs> science fiction crawls up and grabs that, that writer by the throat in the middle of the night. It's actually kind of creepy. So um, she, she did, I think, keep the balance and do just what you would wanted to. So I think that she was beloved. In fact, you can, I can end with this. The tributes made to her after her death 
the many, many, many written tributes. It's already a kind of a collection, not quite of personal memories, which you'd want more. A lot of them are just literary tributes um, uh, from people who love the work, which is also cool. But there's something unusual about that. There's many and many a writer that could die who everybody considered to be a very, very fine writer who would not get that response on their death that she got. So that's worth thinking about, why? And I think it comes to the, the, the warmth of her work. Thank you, Stan. Yeah. If you enjoyed this talk, we hope you'll subscribe to hear more. You might also like Long Now's other podcast, Seminars About Long-Term Thinking, with more than 200 more long-term thinking lectures hosted by Stuart Brand. Subscribe to both at longnow.org slash podcast or wherever you like to listen.